This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Even before the pandemic, gardening was increasingly popular and outdoor living was all the rage, with Americans embracing outdoor kitchens, fire pits, and pergolas. But with the shutdown, the interest in gardens seemed to skyrocket. Nurseries were inundated, unusual plant varieties sold out, and helicopters whirled over the Hamptons virtually every day, delivering massive, full-grown trees. But does this mark a significant change in the way we approach nature? Will the interest in the environment and climate change affect how people think about their own gardens? Are gardens becoming more than just something pretty to look at, but rather as sources of solace and serenity, mental health, and relaxation? I'm fortunate to have with us two people who understand the power and potential of gardens. Edmund Hollander is president of Hollander Design, one of the few landscape architecture firms on the AD100 list. He has designed hundreds of gardens, public and private, from the Hamptons to Hong Kong, ranging in size from small terraces to extensive public parks, including the gardens at the expanded Kennedy Center in D.C. He founded his firm Edmund Hollander Landscape Architects with his partner, Marianne Connolly, in 1991, and has since won awards too numerous to mention, and has published two books on his work, The Good Garden and The Private Oasis. Hello, Ed. Thank you for that wonderful introduction, Michael. Well, it's your wonderful career. Katie Marin is not a landscape architect or professional garden designer, but she is a passionate amateur gardener and a proselytizer for the good that gardens and parks can do. A former editor at Vogue, she is a trustee of the New York Public Library and the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and has edited two anthologies about urban public spaces, City Squares, 18 Writers on the Spirit and Significance of Squares Around the World, and City Parks, Public Places, Private Thoughts. Now, in her charming new book, she takes a more personal approach. In Becoming a Gardener, What Reading and Digging Taught Me About Living, she focuses on the garden she began creating after moving to a house in Connecticut in 2017, inspired by her extensive travels and her reading of classic gardening books. Welcome, Katie. Michael, it's a delight to be here. Thank you very much. I'm so glad both of you are here. And I want to start with you because... I have a feeling that people are regarding their gardens differently, but I could be totally wrong. Do you think this is true? Well, to answer the questions in your introduction, the answers are yes, 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 and yes. Um, (laughs) Everything has changed. And I think it's changed with two drivers really being the causal factors. One, there's no question that the pandemic and people being forced to stay inside, to be in their home, reinforce the importance of home as a place of sanctuary and safety, but it also changed the relationship that people had with their gardens and their landscapes. For many, many years, gardens and landscapes were looked at primarily. But with the pandemic, gardens and landscapes became places to be lived in. They became places where all of the senses could be aroused, where you could smell, you could hear, you could hear the birds, you could smell the flowers. You could hear the wind rustling. You could smell the flowers. They became places of safety. People were dining outside now. People were living outside. You could congregate with family members and friends outside. So the garden and the landscape became a place to live in and not just a place to look at. 
So there's no question that I think that has, who knows when the pandemic ends and what the word permanently means, but I think that has changed the attitude that people have with their gardens and their landscapes. Concurrently, and I don't know the causal relationship here, people are much more focused on healthy landscapes, on their own personal wellness. And so not only are people wanting to live in their gardens and live in their landscapes and experience everything that they have to offer, they want landscapes and gardens that are ecologically sound, that are, if not chemical-free, at least benign. And so that changes the way we plant things. It changes the way we design things. And so we've really created new gardens and new spaces and new landscapes that invite people to live in them, that create a sense of sanctuary and a sense of serenity and a sense of peace and a sense of wellness. And I think those are the two things that we see that have really changed over the past couple of years. Now, Katie, to me, you're kind of an exemplar of what Ed was just saying, because I know you had a garden in Long Island, and this was for years. And I know you've always loved gardening, but I know you worked with Miranda Brooks. But when you bought your house in Connecticut in 2017, it seems like you became much more hands-on and involved. Not that you didn't work with other garden designers or whatever, but it seems you record as very charmingly and beautifully in your book how you plotted out your beds, what plants you love, what flowers you love. What sparked this? Because I know this was in 2017, pre-pandemic, but was it something that you just felt unsatisfied about? It's really came from two different sources. I always loved gardens, as you just said, and I did focus on them a bit at Vogue magazine. I've read a lot about gardens. I have my own small garden library. I did the, or Miranda Brooks did a beautiful garden for us. And when she did it, I would look at her and think, oh my gosh, I wish I could be her apprentice and see how it's Mm -hmm. done. Because I really felt like I knew nothing. And when we bought our new house in Connecticut, I felt like I knew nothing. And I actually did not plan on building a garden. I wanted to be very simple, very much like colonial times where you just saw trees and grass and woods and water. But over time in that house, we lived there, I guess, a year and a half or two, I somehow felt, I did not feel comfortable in the house and I really couldn't figure out why. And one day I was walking our dog and it dawned on me, well, perhaps if I root myself to the land, that would help me root myself to the house. And suddenly all pieces came together and I had a chance for the first time in my life to build a garden. And that's what prompted it. Yeah. And it's very charming how you talk about that. And I know that your husband, Don, died while you were creating the garden. And how did that affect the way you spent your time in the garden and thought about the garden? You talk about the pandemic and how things changed during the pandemic and what gardens did for people from a therapeutic standpoint from a sense of peace, from a sense of value to the human being. And I think I am the perfect example of that. I had started this garden in early 2019, so basically a year before the pandemic hit. But Don died in the end of 2019. The pandemic, as we all know, hit a few months later. And suddenly there we were all in this new house in Connecticut that we had not spent much time in, quietly there alone, very isolated from the world as most people were. And to have that chance to see the garden every day, to be in nature every day, to observe changes every day, I think was 
a saving grace for me. I look back now and realize how valuable it was for me. And certainly, as you know, when I went into it, I didn't have that plan at all. Right, right. Now, Ed, in terms of we talk about serenity and sort of these abstract things, are your clients, your private residential clients, what are they asking you for that's different? Are they more specifically involved? Are they, you know, because I know from my years scouting gardens for garden design and Vogue and El Decor, in the Hamptons, many, there would be beautiful houses and then the garden would be an expansive sod, you know, a long privet hedge and maybe a bed of peonies. And everybody had a similar garden and that was it. And again, like you were saying, it was something pretty to look at, but not really involving. So how has that changed? Well, and I think it's different in different places, whether we're working in Montecito or the Hamptons or wherever we are. I think in general, and if we go from a bigger picture, the way architecture interfaces with landscape and then how landscape, if you will, the built elements of the landscape, the terraces, the dining areas, the kitchen gardens, the places where people live, where they communicate, where they are living with other people. So the built elements of the landscape became things that were more intimately tied with the indoor rooms of the architecture. So indoor architecture, outdoor architecture, indoor rooms, outdoor rooms, they became much more closely aligned. Any place where we work, where the climate encourages this, whether it's Southern California, the Caribbean, or the Hamptons, the collaboration of architect and landscape architect to create spaces that invite people to live in is very critical, and even including the the decorators and the the designers that we work with. Mm -hmm. How that then transitions into the living landscape. How do we bring in pollinators? How do we bring in birds? How do we bring in butterflies? That's where the magic happens, because people know that they're in a comfortable space, but when they see a butterfly alight on a Joe Pye weed or on a Budlia, and they can see monarch butterflies and swallowtail butterflies as they're sitting there having lunch, it just creates joy. And I think one of the things we've all learned, and Katie, I'm so sorry to hear about your husband, but I mean, I think you probably realize this as much as anybody, the joy that can be given by simple things like watching butterflies alight in a garden. That's so true, Ed. And in fact, one of the biggest sources of joy for all of us who were out there, that are my family and I, were the tulips that first came up. As mm-hmm. you all remember, people who live in the Northeast, that was a very gray, cold spring. And you would maybe have a day of sun and then, oh my gosh, we're back to the gray for another week. And suddenly these plants that we put in, in the fall, the first plants that I planted bloomed and there was a vibrant riot of bright, happy color of all of these different kinds of tulips. We put in all different sorts. And every day we'd see these delightful colors right outside our door. And when everything else was gray, that made such a difference. And it gave us a profound, quiet sense of joy. Yeah. And you know, one of the things, Katie, that you talk about in your book, which is so interesting to me, and Ed, I'd love to get your take on this as well, is you talk so much in the book about your vegetable garden. And, you know, I'm not a great gardener and I don't grow many vegetables. I try, I grow a couple of tomato plants and those are struggling this summer. I don't know why, but you have such insights into vegetables, which I think a lot of Americans don't even think of vegetables as something you plant in a garden. I mean, it's a classic American thing. Thomas Jefferson did it or George Washington did it. But I think a lot of people think of 
gardens as flowers, bulbs, perennials, and they don't think about vegetables. And I'd love to get a sense of when you became captivated with all the vegetables that you grow. I think every garden speaks to the personality of the person. And I have always been drawn to New England. Our house is just over the border from New York City or New York, but it's in Connecticut. And that matters to me because it was one of the 13 colonies of New England that mattered so much. And I really wanted to have a garden that harkened back to colonial times, the simplicity of colonial times. And obviously colonial gardens in America were there first and foremost to provide food. And that concept of purpose and productivity mattered a lot to me. So again, it's sort of my kind of personality to want something like that versus a beautiful perennial bed. And both are, I think, equally important. So that's the route I went. And beyond that, though, I'd say that a bed of lettuce is one of the most beautiful things there is out there. It is. That's true. Well, and I, I think that something that people really love about being outside in their garden, too, the ability to be able to bring your children and to see how plants grow and to see their forms and to see their colors and then to see how they taste. And the idea that there are 12 different kinds of cherry tomatoes and each one tastes different and each one looks different. I mean, you look at what a cardoon looks like and how artichokes grow and the flowers on a broccoli. There's great architecture in the form of the various vegetables that we eat. And I think that's another sense of joy to be able to walk down a row of blackberries that are ripe and pick them and pop them in your mouth. And you, you kind of feel like each berry is an explosion of summer with that juiciness. And you see kids with blackberry juice dripping down their cheeks. And you think, what can create more joy for less money? Right. I've read so many times as well from all sorts of gardeners at all different ages of time here, how better any food tastes that you have grown. What I think is quite ironic is that 200 years ago, it was much, much less expensive to raise your own plants than it was to go out and buy them. And now it's the reverse. It is expensive to have your own kitchen garden, but the joy and the satisfaction of eating your own food that you know where it came from is great. But I mean, I know what you're saying, Katie. There's been lots of jokes about, you know, the $1,200 tomato and stuff because by the time you do the break, you know, and then you get a couple of tomatoes. I I have been the the butt of some of those jokes. So, yeah, (laughs) you know, and creating a garden. and, And one of the things that we do is we have to teach our clients a little bit about that soil is a living thing and that sometimes, particularly on post-construction sites, you're trying to make soil, you want to use organic materials, trying to explain to them that worms and bugs and things that crawl are what give life to the soil and that's what's going to give you great tomatoes and great zucchinis and great melons and things like that. And then we're creating fences to keep out the little critters that also find all these vegetables incredibly delicious. Yes, they do. And so it it does take some work sometime, though we've done gardens that are as simple as a four by eight foot bed that cost nothing to potagers that can cover an acre and have all sorts of fruit and vegetables and everything else in them. And Ed, you had said, mentioned something which I think I, I want to get back to about you've made gardens basically all across the country. And, and I think locality, which is something Katie also talks a little bit about in her book, the location and how the landscape varies. But I think that people have this 
for a long time, this vision of everybody wanted a Gertrude Jekyll English garden, which is great if you have that kind of climate and that kind of soil. But, you know, it's not going to work in California and Montecito right. or whatever. So do you think that people are more aware of that? And do you think that all the climate disasters that we're having, the droughts, the floods, all of that, people are more willing to get away from the traditional view of what a garden is? I think they have to. I think the reality is there, there are a couple things. One, because we work with a full range of architects from anyone as contemporary as Stephen Hole and, and Annabelle Seldorf to anyone as traditional as Robert Stern or wherever you work, our landscapes are always reflections of the architecture to some extent. We always talk about the three ecologies, the ecology of the site, the architectural ecology of the buildings, and the human ecology of our clients and the families that are going to use them. And so every landscape that we create is a response to those three ecologies. But the natural ecology that we all live in every day is something that is becoming more stressful. Storms are worse, rainfalls worse, droughts worse. The only benefit I've seen is in the Northeast, temperatures have moderated. So plants like crepe myrtles that never used to grow here in Southern Magnolia, all of a sudden do grow here. And the plants that used to grow here that like it colder will no longer grow here which takes the entire concept of native plants and throws that into a whole turmoil, if you will. So there's no question that climate change is, is impacting what we do and how we do it. The work we're doing out in California, where we've got both fire and drought restrictions, it has an enormous impact on what we can do and how we do it. And to put in a formal Gertrude Jekyll type garden in Southern California would be kind of the height of ecological irresponsibility, yeah. I think. Yeah, but I'm sure some people still want it. I think one of our jobs, to some extent, is to be teachers and to talk about ecological responsibility. Most of our clients have great resources, but generally want to do the right thing. And sometimes we just need to discuss that. And we're talking about, how do you want to live here? Well, I want a big lawn for my kids. Okay, but let's talk about kids running around on grass barefoot. If your grandchildren are running around, we want them running around on something where there aren't fungicides and there aren't herbicides and there aren't pesticides that may impact them. And, oh, and when you phrase it that way, they say, well, of course I don't. Okay, so <laughs> then let's talk about what we really want. And so to some extent, I'm not sure having done this for 30 or 40 years, if you start to become kind of a garden psychologist or something, but understanding people and listening to who they are and listening to what dreams they have, and then trying to create a landscape that fulfills their dreams in a way, because everybody wants a healthy place for their kids and their family and their dogs and their pets. And that's not to say we can't have beds of peonies and we can't have lilacs and we can't have all the magical things that people hearken back to when they were at grandma's house when they were kids. But we can do it in a way where we're not spraying DDT all over the landscape. I think that's one of our jobs is to lead clients into a place where we can create beautiful landscapes that are ecologically appropriate and non-toxic and actually something that will be beneficial. One of the things we try to talk to our clients about is that they're not the only users of these landscapes, that we want honeybees, we want butterflies, we want birds, we want all of Mother Nature's bounty to consider this their home as well. 
Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying our podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I'm the co-founder and president of Cherish. If you're a designer who's struggling with long lead times from suppliers and increasingly impatient clients, now is the time to shop with us. Our vintage antique and one-of-a-kind inventory is ready to ship right now. To learn more, visit Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com. And now back to the show. Katie, you mentioned early on, and I chuckled to myself, you said you originally didn't want a garden. You just wanted it to be very simple. The grass, the trees, the water. But as we all know, simple is the hardest thing to do. And one of my favorite parts of your book was when you talk about designing the fence for your beds. Because this, this is the kind of thing that I think, I'm sure you, you know this, I'm sure, people don't think about. But of course, to keep those critters from eating all the beautiful lettuces, you've got to have some sort of fence. And I just thought that was so great. Could you talk a little about the process of doing that and how you came to think about creating the garden as a separate but not totally separate place? Because you also planted stuff outside of the, gar- uh, outside of the fence, rather. Yeah, we did. And first, what I had to do was create a space and in that case, I had an old, the, the house, the people who lived there before us had an old, really beat up basketball court and a really falling down cutting garden. There was not a flower in it. The fence had <laughs> rotted. It was a wreck. So there was nothing there. Um, but I dug them up and then we had to repair the soil, which is essential. Soil is certainly something I have learned about a lot. I never thought of myself as very scientific, and I found myself surprised that I was actually interested in reading scientific articles and even a book about the value of soil. It's essential. So once I did that, we had a very clean, open space. And the space where it was very clear the garden should be 48 by 54 feet is what we measured out. And then, of course, I realized it needed boundaries. There are several writers who will talk about the essential need for boundaries, and it's a way you create a space of your own, which is one of the beauties of a garden. First, I thought about a walled garden because it was right off the driveway and to preserve one's own privacy. And then I thought, oh, no, that would be just terrible. And first of all, we didn't have the space for it. A walled garden, as and you both know, Michael, is usually in an English countryside estate and far off in the distance. Yeah, and also, exactly. <laughs> and they can be huge. One I saw that was size of two and a half football fields. It was hard to imagine how big it was. But beyond that, too, we had what they term borrowed landscape. We had a wonderful landscape rolling out ahead of us in our neighbor's lawn. So, we were able to benefit by that by looking at that view. And so therefore, it was thinking very clear to make a fence. As I mentioned earlier, I really wanted to make this house feel more like mine and ours. And so I did not want to copy the previous owner's split rail fence. So I decided we should create our own new fence. And I looked on this wonderful young landscape designer, whom I also think Ed knows, named Catherine Chivone. We looked at books and books, and I had found this beautiful fence in Bunny Mellon's farmland in Virginia. And it was a fence I learned that came from the Civil War. I thought it was stunning. So I thought about doing that. Well, we put up a couple of sides, and it looked disastrous. It looked like what a friend called a corral fence. And it dawned on <laughs> <in> me... <laughs> Oh, it was that bad. It was really, couldn't, I couldn't describe how bad it was. And, but it had you to You need nicer friends. 
No, no. No, honesty is good in a friend. Honest (laughs) friends. They were very honest (laughs) friends. And even if she hadn't said it, I would have known it myself. It was disastrous. And it, and of course, I thought to myself, well, how obvious, you know, it works for miles on end, feels miles on end, but to in work Virginia, in Virginia, it looks beautiful, In Virginia, right? yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But here in this small plot of land, by comparison, it looked all wrong. So we worked and worked and went through, oh, I'd say 18, 20 designs to get to the point where we did. And ultimately, I think we created an original fence that has a bit of Mount Vernon in it. It has a bit of a fence I saw. It has our own sense. It has, of course, the wire that you need to keep out the critters that you talk about, Michael. And, and then there was even the discussion about how deep that wire goes into the ground. We decided in 18 inches, but that's a lot to dig into the ground. And then it looked beautiful. Uh, the wood was going to last. And, and then it turned out the man who made it didn't use stainless steel nails. He used another kind of seal that bled during the winter. So by the springtime, it looked like it had been burned in a fire. It looked terrible. And again, what do you do? Well, I wasn't about to take it down, so I painted it dark green. And I felt very lucky to find what I thought was the right color of dark green very quickly. And it's looked wonderful ever since. But it took all that time. And one quote I think of is Winston Churchill saying, a garden presents all sorts of innumerable problems. And that was certainly one of mine. But finally, <laughs> yes. you know, patience. But there's photos in the book and it's beautiful. Off. I love the green that you chose. It just sets well, off those you. leaves so, so beautifully. You. And I'd like to talk a little bit, and certainly, Katie, you know about this too because you've added to these books about it, public gardens as opposed to private residential gardens. Because I think another impact of the pandemic was that people – not that it hadn't been building for, for a while, but I think, you know, suddenly parks from Central Park to the little square in Tribeca um, near where I live or whatever, suddenly people be, really realize the importance of these things and they use them more and begin to treasure them more. So, Ed, when you're asked to design a public garden like you did at the Kennedy Center, how do you go about thinking about that? What's the difference? Well, the the difference is really who's going to use it and how they're going to use it. And the difference between it really, I mean, we're still dealing with the ecological factors that we need to understand, the the natural ecologies and the architectural ecologies. And obviously, the Kennedy Center was an enormously complicated building designed by Stephen Holware. The largest part of our landscapes were actually on the roof of the buildings. Right, and at an angle. Yes, which are fabulous. And on the other scale of that, we do a lot of work for the New York Restoration Project in New York City, designing much more intimately scaled gardens in really in communities that are underserved by public parks. And there we're focusing on places of sanctuary for people to be, to gather, and to grow a lot of food. But either way there, I think what we, this, some of the same things have happened with parks and public gardens. The Kennedy Center was very interesting because the original Kennedy Center was your classic imposing building, much like the original architecture at Lincoln Center, where when we first drove up there, you expected to see Mamie Eisenhower get out of a Lincoln Continental in a mink stole and (laughs) and having the door opened up. And and she and the people like her were invited inside. What Stephen Holt designed there is, is exactly the opposite. All of the exterior spaces are designed to invite people to experience the arts in a living landscape. And so just the entire where the arts were only for the wealthy 
and the and the privileged at the Kennedy Center, the arts and the performing arts are for everyone. And they occur inside and they occur outside. And the lines between inside and outside are ambiguous. And the landscapes at the Kennedy Center are broad sweeps of meadows and 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 plants that 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 celebrate the seasonality of the landscape and of this particular swampy area adjacent the Potomac River. I mean, planting and growing gardens in Washington, D.C. is not for the faint of heart, particularly public landscapes that need to be accessed and used. So there are a whole different set of parameters. What what Katie said about that it all comes down to soil, truer words have never been spoken. In this case, we had to create and manufacture all of our soil that was then placed on the roofs of these buildings that then supported these very natural-looking meadow areas, grove of ginkgo trees, one planted in honor of John F. Kennedy at the Kennedy Center. So it's a very different scale, but the idea of creating soil and creating landscapes and creating healthy places that people can go where their senses are stimulated, where they can smell, they can feel, where they become alive, where they can revel in the magic of watching a honeybee taking nectar out of a milkweed. I don't care if it's in your backyard at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., at a small private garden that we've done for the the New York Restoration Project in Brooklyn. The magic of seeing that brings equal joy to everybody, irrespective of where they fall in the whole spectrum of life. But it's interesting. It's such a change from, like, I guess when I was young and first became aware of public gardens, like Dan Kiley's garden at Lincoln Center. I mean, it was so such strict geometry, you know, rows of trees. It was that you walk by it. You looked at it from a distance, you walked by it, and you could walk around it, but it, it was like a sculpture almost. And God bless Dan, Kylie, but that was a landscape to be looked at. That was a landscape that celebrated how plants can be used as architectural forms. Mm-hmm. And Very for modern. that time and that place, listen, there are things of enduring beauty, there are works of art. Today's world, though, I don't know that we have the luxury of just being able to look at a landscape and not being able to live in a landscape. There is a certain, I mean, when I, I love Lincoln Center, but there's a sterileness to that landscape that doesn't encourage people to stay. It doesn't encourage the senses. There's no sense of smell or, or it's just there's architecture in the buildings and architecture in the landscape, but there's nothing that's going to delight the senses of a child. Yeah. But it was interesting, it's in urban planning, and Katie, you can talk about this too, because you know, in urban planning in the 70s, 60s, 70s was all about sort of the barren plaza, you know, a few trees, setting off the buildings, but not inviting, as opposed to like the kind of squares that you write, you know, that book that you put together, Katie, about the squares. And that, I think, has come back to New York, you know, like this, the private garden squares in London that are such a delight to come upon, even if you're just walking by them and looking in through the iron fence, if you don't have a key or whatever, or Gramercy Park which again, in New York, you have to have a key. But, you know, the little, there's one, I live in Tribeca, there's one on Canal Street that's come. People actually love those and be much more engaged with them than before. And I think that that has been a real shift. And I think it probably a shift in the right direction. Would you agree, Katie? Because you know about the history of this much more than I do. Yeah, I would agree. And I think there is a difference between parks and squares. Both of them matter so much to me because they're democratic spaces in the sense that they are free. 
and anyone can go to them other than these locked up ones that you're talking about. But as you say, and every time I go to Gramercy Park, I always fix in through the fence and admire it or imagine what it would be like to be there. I've never been inside. But I think Michael Kimmelman had a very interesting quote, which was in my book about squares. And he said that a park is where people go to alone, to have some privacy, to get away from others. And a square is where people come together. And when you think of city squares throughout history, there were always major gathering spots for people. In fact, the reason I came up with the idea is doing a book on city squares is we were right uh, staying right next to the Piazza del Popolo in Rome, which was this big, beautiful square mm-hmm. I call Italy, the mother country of squares. And at the same time, that huge crisis was going on in the Maidan in Kiev, in Ukraine. And this was in 2014. And the difference, the the comparison between the two really hit me. And that's what made me decide to focus in on city squares in history, geopolitics and culture. And you've always been a great reader, Katie. I mean, even in your new book, as personal as it is, you quote everybody from, you know, Beatrix Potter's Peter Rabbit to Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And I think for me, it was great fun to read all those quotes because it makes me realize that all the issues that I have in my garden have been experienced by much more wise and much more experienced gardeners than I have, and they haven't gone away. And so I guess that's part of being a gardener is, and even you said that, Ed, you know, how many plants we've killed. I mean, I, I'd hate to add up over the years how many plants I've killed and what I've spent on them. <laughs> but I find it so reassuring. And I think what you've done, especially for people who are starting out on their own gardens, and I hope that people realize this about your book, it's really going to be a valuable and reassuring resource for them. And I'd, I'd love to know if that was part of your intention, because I know you've been a garden reader for decades, and even before you were more of a, a, such a hands-on gardener. And why do you think that is? Is it something primal in you that you just have had a, felt a connection? Yeah, I think there's something primal in so many of us. In fact, it's funny that they say the gardening gene skips a generation often, that it's your grandparents, and Ed referred to grandparents before. I don't, I did not have grandparents who garden. I didn't particularly have parents who garden. We didn't have a garden. And so it is, I sometimes ask myself, where did this come from? I, I don't know, but I have always found an appeal to beautiful books about gardens and serious books about gardens. Yet for years, for many, many years, Michael, I was, you know, I delightedly look at them on the shelf and I, maybe dip into them now and then, but I honestly thought they were too intimidating, that I did not have the information or the knowledge to be able to appreciate them. So I never read them. And when I decided to tackle this garden for my own, I thought, well, I should go back to these writers and start reading the books. And the other thing that kept me, I think, and, and it's paid off so much. And a lot of this book is really my conversation as I've look at it with these writers, because I learn from all of them. And I think it's totally true what you say, that whatever is happening in our gardens or whatever happens in our points of view has happened again and again and again. And sometimes I thought, oh my goodness, I came up with this idea. And then I'd read it from, you know, some very serious writer. And I think, oh, you know, 
know, that is an original idea. But at the same time, I thought there was something very satisfying that, that in fact, these have all been done before and people have all experienced the same thing. And gardens, gardens have been significant in people's lives for so many thousands of years. The other inspiration, we're talking about books for my, um, my book, was a quote from Cicero that I heard maybe a decade ago. And it was, if you have a garden and a library, you have all you need. And I've asked myself again and again what that meant. But that was written 2000, uh, 2000 years before Christ. So imagine that, how long ago that was. Um, there's an ancient Chinese proverb I read recently at the same time, which is, if you want to be happy for a lifetime, be a gardener. The one thing throughout history that you can trace almost through every civilization and before that is the connection between man, in quotations, if you will, um, and the land. And whether it was subsistence farming or gardening, there's, you know, there's always a connection to the land. And I think that's something that is inescapable. Um, it's something that, that, that urban dwellers, um, you know, that the reason why the, the great affection for parks and squares, I think, really comes down to the fact that that people need that sense. They need they need the the smell of 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 leaves and flowers and grass, and they need the serenity that they provide. They need the connection to nature. And I want to ask you somewhat of a practical question, because you know, not our audience is largely made up of professional designers. Now, not all of professional designers are going to have the for good fortune of working with you or uh, even another landscape designer at all. Right. But I do think that there's an awareness on the part of their clients that outdoors is becoming maybe almost as equally as important as the inside of their home. Mm -hmm. So what advice would you have for those designers to help them guide their clients in the right way? Hire a good landscape architect. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, but if the client is right. reluctant, what but would you see, say? And I, I, one of the things that we really love doing is collaborating, whether it's with architects or designers or interior. You know, they're, 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 we all do the same thing. We're creating space for people to live and to enjoy and to celebrate. Um, the, the, the difference between interior rooms and exterior rooms, um, part of it is scale. Um, you don't have built walls, but you can create living wall. Um, you don't have ceilings, but you can use trees to create a sense of a room. Um, there are there are more senses that you can delight outside because you can smell the fragrance of flowers. You can enjoy the colors. Um, you can you can hear the breeze blowing. Um, a great garden or landscape is one that engages as many senses as possible. Um, that that really great gardens are are felt and experienced emotionally as much as they are in any other way. I think that's so true. And and the other thing about great gardens is. They often have different feelings as you move around them. You know, sure, the absolutely. old thing about garden rooms. Um, but, you know, it doesn't have to be a room, but it can just be, you know, it depends, again, on the landscape. The, is it a shady well, a area? a landscape is can it, be a series of, the word right. garden can mean right. almost anything. Right. And landscapes, right. people often say, well, what's the difference between a landscape architect and a garden designer? And garden designers, we think about create beautiful gardens, whether they're shade gardens or white gardens or flower gardens or whatever they're. Landscape architects can include gardens in a larger landscape, but one also thinks about 
all of the built spaces that people live in and, and all of the more natural areas that we celebrate, whether they're wetlands or woodlands or meadows. Um, and, and, and I think one of the things we see nowadays is people appreciating natural spaces as gardens, as well as, you know, the gardens of Sissinghurst, if you will. And one of the things I want to ask both of you about, and Katie, I want to start with you, because you talk a little about this in your book, is, you know, the gardens, like anything else, go through trends and fashions. And, you know, like you talk about dahlias and how, and I remember when dahlias were considered, you know, vulgar and too big and too bright and too colorful, and most serious gardeners didn't like them. Then they became totally in, in fashion, and now they're going a little bit out of fashion. Um, I, you know, I still love them, but, um, and as do you, and I know you plant them and I love them, but you know, we've had rage for, as Ed was mentioning, native plants. That was all that everything had to be native. Then we had the things for, you know, swaths of grasses that would blow in the wind, which are beautiful, but now you see grasses everywhere. So my question to you, Katie, is what are you looking at now? What are you loving? What are you thinking about planting this fall and next spring in your garden? What do you think the next fashion is for plants? Is it something all this coming back, or is there something? Is there a plant that you particularly love and you're looking forward to to putting in your garden? Mm, that's an interesting question, and I I, I remember too, Michael. Back when I was at Vogue, uh, probably when we both were years ago, dahlias were not liked at all. And there was oh a, no, they were totally considered vulgar. I remember that. And there was a wonderful man who, for some reason, grew them, and I heard about him. And in Southampton, every Friday afternoon, he would bring me two or three buckets of dahlias. And I was so excited about it. And I felt like almost proud that I was a bit of a rebel. <laughs> I liked dahlias, <laughs> which sounds so absurd. Um, but so, and I have now faded off them a little bit, not a lot. And how could you not have dahlias in the end of summer and certainly into the fall, well into the fall. Uh, but as you say, I think people have seen them so much that they, that they are also, you know, that's why people are getting tired of them. And I don't really, what I'm going to do with my garden is make it a bit more simple because I found it was a great project and it was, you know, an immense amount of work and very, very rewarding work, but I really want to do it all myself. And I can't manage a garden of that scale on my own. So in that sense, I want to scale it back, uh, not have it complicated. That's one reason I like vegetables because they just tend to generally grow in rows and you don't have all of these different characters moving up and down and dying and in and out. Uh, but what I guess I am drawn to right now is fruit trees. And oh, I wonder, since you say that, that's what I wish we had more of. We bought seven beautiful apple trees uh, which I found old ones. I went to a, a, a field of, gar of apple trees uh, with a man, a landscape um, a provider, and he and I just went through so many and I've chose seven. And I've gotten such satisfaction, particularly in the fall, from watching those apples grow and eat them. And, and so I really would like to learn more about different kinds of, of, of fruit and plant them. And Ed, what about you? Is there a plant now that you love or that you're, you're recommending to clients or are your clients asking for a particular kind of plant? I, I think it's not so much a particular plant, but I think 
there is the, the, the idea of attracting pollinators to your garden and to your landscape and to bring in to, you know, where people are like, ooh, a bee. And now they realize, you know, bees are, you know, they're the, they're, they're the, they're the, the essential element in the, in the entire food chain. Um, and they're and not, so, they're not having a great time either at the moment. No, bees are not having a great time though. As we've, as we've started to remove chemicals from the landscape, I suppose it's no huge surprise that they are, they are finding their way back. We have more and more clients that are asking to have, to have, um, hives put on their property. Um, particularly for, and, and, you know, Katie's love of, of, of fruit trees, I think is, 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 is wonderful. And, you know, seeing the joy again, that people get from, from peaches and pears and plums and apples. But I think the idea of, of, it's not a particular plant so much as the idea of, of plants that invite in, um, the birds and the butterflies and the bees. Um, I think people love that. And it, it gives you a great diversity of plants that you can work with depending on the individual area where you're located. Um, but, but that sense of bringing nature into the garden again, where da- a, a row of dahlias is beautiful, but it's inherently sterile. And, and it's, it's for your enjoyment, but does nothing for the rest of the earth, as opposed to you know a pollinator garden or a pollinator meadow that has wonderful flowers and wonderful textures and butterflies alighting on the flowers and honeybees working it and hummingbirds zipping in and out. You know, it's like the entire web of life has come to your garden. Right. So I guess it's really the mix because I, you know, I can tell you the, my roses certainly attracted more than their share of Japanese beetles. I don't yes. know if that's during much of the environment. <laughs> but no, and, you know, I, I have tons of bees and I've, you know, the whole thing about the lawn now is, you know, let it grow longer. Margaret Roach writes about this so often and very well in, and we in do, the And we times. do big fields. We do big swaths of clover used to right. be an anathema to lawn. Right. Right. And then all of a sudden we can we can use clover at that you don't mow it you don't this and and the honeybees love it and and you can walk all over it and and all of a sudden oh isn't that nice right I know it's funny how the perceptions have changed it's so interesting okay I have one last question for each of you um, Katie since you're fairly I wouldn't say you're a beginner gardener far from it but since you just started this new garden a few years ago. Um, what would what would be your best advice to somebody who wants to get into gardening? Really wants to go beyond having a landscaper come and mow their lawn and weed whack. First of all, I would say I'm a beginner gardener. At this point, I consider myself <laughs> a gardener, but very much a novice. And one of the exciting factors about being a gardener is you will learn your entire life. We were talking about that earlier. And just that concept of learning and you will never feel like you've exhausted everything and you know what you're doing. I, I just think that's, that's one of the most rewarding things. The one thing I guess I would say is if you're hesitant about gardening, um, as I was, and is just plunge in there. <laughs> as you both talked about, lots of things die for people. As, some, as one of the writers said, a lot of things die and a lot of things live for you too. And it's all about trial and error at any stage of gardening. So I think it's just, just, just to start. I would advise to start small though, because there's a lot to learn. And I think if you take on too much, it might be overwhelming and it might say, Oh, I don't want to do this after all. And, and, and I would hate for anyone to be swayed against doing it because it certainly is such a prime source of satisfaction now for me and for so many people 
all through history. And, and I just think it's so worthwhile. Yeah, I agree. What about you, Ed? What, what's your advice? Well, having done this professionally for at least 30 years and maybe more, I think the thing you begin to realize is you will always be a novice gardener, that there are always things to learn and always new things to see. And, you know, the, the plant world is a, is a never-ending education, if you will. Does it take a little bit of fearlessness? Sure. I think the main thing to think about, I think really, is that everything you're dealing with is a living thing. Soil is a living thing. Plants are living things. Understanding what they need to live and revel in the joy, revel in the magic, revel in the small things that gardens and landscapes can provide that you almost can't find anywhere else. I mean, there is, there, there is a, a magic and a joy that comes from flowers and, and butterflies that I just, you know, to this day, I can go outside and see a monarch butterfly on one of our butterfly bushes this time of year or two or three of them. And you just, you know, you may be racing to see a client and you stop and you think to yourself, look at this magical thing that, that flutters on these gossamer wings with this thing that's dipping nectar out of this beautiful plant. And it's like, what a joy that is for 19 cents. My advice to any beginning gardener is to read a lot of books and especially to read your books, Ed, and also particularly Katie's new book, Becoming a Gardener, What Reading and Digging Taught Me About Living, because it really encapsulates so much of the process and, and the rewards, uh, the, the really psychic rewards of gardening. And you guys are spreading the word about something that I think is so important in our society and the, and the world at large. But, you know, climate and ecological change is something that we've got to come to terms with. And creating a garden is something each one of us can do, even if it's just a pot on your windowsill. So I want to thank my wonderful guests, Katie Marin and Ed Hollander. And I want to thank everyone for listening to the Cherish Podcast. You've been listening to the Cherish Podcast, brought to you, of course, by Cherish, which was recently voted by the readers of USA Today as the best place to shop online for furniture and home decor. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or better yet, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and engineered by Hanger Studios in New York. Until next time.